0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. In today's message in our series, The Fellowship of the Gospel, we'll look at a critical issue for the church today. So join me as we turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, with this lesson from Dr. Newfeld entitled, An Urgent Appeal to Christian Unity.
1: I think we all get it. Churches are less than perfect. Churches, just like individuals, sometimes sin. But when churches as a whole sin, people are left wounded, disillusioned, discouraged, bitter. Sometimes people just stop going to church. Sometimes entire churches fragment and cease to exist. Sometimes people are left with such bitterness that anger becomes the defining characteristic of their lives. And sometimes we hear the whispers, hypocrites. If that's what the church is all about, count me out. We all know the stories. Oh, what's to be done? How can the church of Jesus Christ keep this from being their track record? Is disunity the result of bad churches, or is it possible for any church to fall into disunity? See, I think it is possible. I think there's enough sin in all of our lives, individually and corporately, that we're capable of doing each other harm and cutting off an effective ministry of Jesus in the wider community. Every local church has the latent seeds within them that can make this happen. You know, some Bible teachers coming to chapter 2 of Philippians make an assumption. They assume that the reason Paul has such an urgent appeal for church unity in chapter 2 is because the Philippian church must have been dealing with internal squabbles and fights. You know, they'll point to chapter 4, verse 2, which says, I entreat you, Oidea, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. They say the nature of Paul's urgent appeal in the beginning of chapter 2 must mean that something was wrong. See, but I disagree. Some of you will remember that I have consistently said that I believe the Philippian church was a model church. It doesn't mean they were perfect. They were far from that, but they were definitely heading in the right direction. I think Christ was pleased with them. I think that if they had been included in the seven churches that Christ spoke to in the book of Revelation, the Philippian church, much like the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, would not have been rebuked. See, one of the reasons I think that is because when a church had problems, Paul never hinted at that. He stated it outright. Consider what he said to the Corinthian church. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. No hinting around here. He says it the way it is. Or consider what Paul said to the Ephesian church, and I'm quoting Acts chapter 20, 29, and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wow. It takes a lot of courage to stare people down and say, this is what's going on in your own hearts. But that's what Paul did. Does Paul sound to you like a man who just hints at stuff? See, I don't think so. He has a record of dealing with problems straight up. He names them. But here in Philippians, he makes no accusation. I assume, therefore, he's not accusing them of anything. Furthermore, in Philippians 2, after giving a lengthy treatment on the need for unity, Paul sums it all up in chapter 2, verse 12 by saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, You see, this was the Philippian practice. They were known for their submission to Christ, and Paul commends them. Well, if I'm right about that, then that the Philippian church was in fact a model church, a unified church, why then, in chapter 2, is there such an urgent appeal for unity? Well, here's my understanding of it. Paul is writing to the Philippians in prison. He's being persecuted for his faith. Then in chapter 1, verse 30, he indicates that the Philippian church was being persecuted also, going through the same experience that he was having. But he writes them to remain courageous. And yet, Paul also knows that if Satan cannot destroy this church through persecution and suffering, he still has another weapon. That weapon is mistrust of one another, suspicions over each other's motives, wounds they might inflict on each other. Here's what I do know. The pathway towards disunity is a well-worn path it is very easily gotten onto. It moves ahead very quickly, and once begun, it's very hard to turn around. How many of you have heard of Pandora's box? That's a story in Greek mythology in which the first woman ever, Pandora, is given a beautiful box by one of the gods, which contains all the evil of the world inside of it. She is told never to open it. But curiosity gets the better of her, and she opens it just a bit to get a peek. And when she does, all the evil escapes, and she can never put that evil back in the box. See, that's what happens when suspicion and mistrust and slander and accusation and rumors and arrogance leave people struggling with wounds, take root in any local church. It's so hard to get that stuff back in the box. New patterns of mistrust and further accusations quickly form. But it's not impossible to correct that, but it is hard, and it does require sincere repentance. It seems that Paul knows that this danger is as great, perhaps even a greater danger than the persecution of the world. And by the way, I think it's always a danger to any local church. There are enough fires of hell that leap out from any one of us, tearing down what God has made. So if Paul's right, and he is, that disunity is very easy to fall into, how do we guard against it? See, seeing this as a real danger, how can any local church find their way through? Well, let's read our text, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Now, please notice that this entire passage is an if-then clause. If verse 1 is true, then verses 2 to 4 must logically be sought after, or to put it another way. If the four things that Paul describes in verse 1 are experienced by any local church, then they have a foundation upon which they can build an enduring legacy of unity. So what are the foundations of Christian unity? From verse 1, we notice four foundation stones. The first foundation stone is this, if there is any encouragement in Christ— Remember that Paul is writing these words to a persecuted church which is in danger of being intimidated by a hostile culture. Paul might be referring to the comfort from Christ that persecuted believers feel when no comfort can be found anywhere else. Perhaps he has in mind the resurrection of Jesus and the sure knowledge that death cannot ultimately harm believers. Christ's promises are true. Or perhaps he means the encouragement that the Philippian believers have had when they spent time together in prayer and sensed Christ's peace in the middle of the storm of persecution. But whatever he's referring to, the real point is that the entire church in Philippi, all the believers there, could say, yes, all of us have experienced Christ's encouragement when the world turned against us. Now, the second foundation stone, if there is any comfort from love, Now, here Paul does not mention whether he's thinking about the love of God or the love that the believers have for each other. We know that in Romans 5, verse 5, Paul speaks of the love of God poured out into our hearts. But we also know that love for fellow believers always flows from the love of God. The point is that when the believers at Philippi had been most upset by the threats against them, had not love been their consolation? Didn't they all know what it felt like to experience love? So they knew the foundation stones of encouragement and love. Here now is the third foundation stone. If there is any participation in the Spirit. Here Paul reminds them of what he has already taught them. When Paul thinks about a future event, that is, when he thinks about the day when he will be led before Caesar's tribunal to give an account of his faith and of his ministry activities and the often violent reactions to his message, he expects at that very moment to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The same is true of the Philippians when they are being threatened. They are to take their stand in the Spirit. And if we were able to talk to the church in Philippi and we were to ask them to describe the experiences they had, when the Holy Spirit gave them a special anointing of boldness, every one of them would have had a story to tell. I mean, the point again is that the entire church shared this experience. And then the fourth foundation stone, if there is any affection and sympathy, See, those two words can also read compassions and mercies. And if you pay attention as you read this letter, you'll find all sorts of examples of this. The Philippians' care for Paul in prison is but one example of that. This church was filled with examples of compassion that these people had demonstrated for Paul and for each other. So when we come back... We will see that this kind of joint church experience is intended to lead to an enduring unity that safeguards against disunity and suspicions and negativity that might otherwise drive them apart.
0: Despite the outside persecution that the church was facing, Paul knew that the real danger was the internal conflicts from within. How many of us have witnessed or heard of churches falling apart because of the godless actions and behaviors of people? While tensions will always arise, it's imperative that we model Christ to others with the help of the Holy Spirit. After the break, we'll learn to discover more about what true unity in the church looks like. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, it's with great sincerity that the entire Back to the Bible ministry team wants to express its deep appreciation for the gracious support of all of our donors. But for this moment, we'd like to express our gratitude to those of you who support this ministry as monthly partners. In normal times, we recognize and value the important role you play. But in unprecedented times as these, the essential nature of your commitment to continue to teach the Bible and share the gospel could not be more obvious. So thank you. Please be assured of our daily prayers for you and your families in challenging times. We extend our gratitude for your partnership in the gospel. And remember, all of our resources continue to be made available online at backtothebible.ca, or for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: has laid out for us the foundation stones of Christian unity. If we concentrate on how Christ has encouraged us, what love has done for us, how the Holy Spirit has supported us, and how our corporate experiences have encouraged us in the past, then, with that common experience, we can fight the battle for Christian unity. We are called upon in every local church to remember God's actions in the past, the conversions, the care for the weak and the sick and the elderly, the common experiences of grace. And if there are those things we have ground to stand upon, we can fight for unity. But, and this needs also to be said, that when these things are not there, any local church is walking on a very thin edge, ready to explode into suspicions of each other. But where those four things exist, encouragement, love, evidence of the Holy Spirit's activities, and acts of compassion, where they permeate the place, unity has a chance of being enduring, even in the middle of the most trying of times. So let's go on to verse 2. Remember, if these four foundation stones exist, then says Paul, complete my joy. Now here's the question why doesn't Paul say, then don't let these joint experiences ever be overshadowed by the differences that might exist between you. Instead, he appeals to his own joy. Indeed, the words complete my joy are the only imperative or the only command in this passage. Why does he command his joy and not the Philippian unity? Now, in order to understand this unique feature of this passage, we might want to review the theme of joy so far in the book. We've noticed in chapter 1, verse 4, that Paul prayed for the Philippian church a lot, and every time he did, he found himself filled with joy. That was because of the partnership that they had had in advancing the gospel deeply into the heart of the Roman Empire. We notice in chapter 1, verse 18, that Paul was rejoicing as the gospel was being heard in Rome because of his imprisonment there. We also noticed in the latter part of verse 18 that Paul was looking forward to rejoicing when he entered Caesar's tribunal. In each case, his joy is directly related to the advance of the gospel. What we learn from Paul is that laying down your life for the gospel is anything but drudgery. It is pure joy. It is the fuel for carrying on his mission. But now he says, my joy is not yet complete. Something needs to be added. But what could that be? After all, he's witnessing Christ's gospel advancing. Well, says Paul, something needs to be added to my joy. Your unity would make my joy complete. But why does Paul make it about himself? Why not make it about them and their experience or about the advancement of the gospel? Why his joy? The great 4th century preacher John Chrysostom put it this way, He said, there is nothing better, there is nothing more affectionate than a spiritual teacher that surpasses the kindness of a natural father. Imagine it this way. Imagine a father saying to his children, if I mean something to you, if you remember my care for you, if you're determined to honor me, then pay me back in this way. Love your brothers and sisters. That's all I ask. And that, in fact, is what Paul is doing. He won many of these Philippian Christians to Christ. He planted that church. His teaching provided the basis for their fellowship. His suffering sustained it. He was their spiritual father. Now, this spiritual father is in prison, and they've sent him a gift. And later in the letter, in chapter 4, verse 11, he's going to tell them he doesn't need any more gifts from them. But here in chapter 2, verse 2, he tells them he wants one gift, and that gift would be to hear of their unity. Now, I can identify with that. When my dad died at his funeral, the letter that was read was a letter from him to his kids. See, I didn't know that that letter had been written on his deathbed, and I also didn't know that it was a part of the funeral, but as it was read, it felt just like dad was speaking to us from beyond the grave. His words to his children were these, love each other from the heart until your own time of death arrives. Now, to hear that was profoundly moving and inspired me to do the very thing that my father wanted more than anything else of us. And that's what Paul is saying. And in this, as the spiritual father of the Philippians, he is reflecting the very heart of the God who called them. Here we see Paul's heart, and God's heart is exactly the same. See, our heavenly Father smiles when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Or let me put it negatively, our Father is grieved when we live in discord. But what does genuine unity look like? Does it really just paper over our differences and the offense that we have against each other? No. In fact, let's let Paul give us two descriptors of genuine unity. Let's look at the first one in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, we notice here three phrases that describe the same reality. The first is to be of one mind. That doesn't assume that we all think the same way about everything. I mean, to point out the obvious, we don't have the same uh, taste in clothes and cars or whether we like professional sports or not. Now, that's easy, but let's get a little touchier. We might not have the same taste in music. We might not all agree with the decisions that we make corporately as a church. So what does Paul mean when he says being of the same mind? Now, the word mind here is the same word that he's using back in chapter 1, verse 7, where that word was translated as feel. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. Also, that same word is used in chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says he knows the Philippian church was concerned for him. Now, it should become apparent that that word has a range of meanings, and I think we can put it together by saying that Paul wants the Philippians to have the same feelings or concerns or purposes together. He wants their passion for their joint mission together to override any potential differences. Then he adds, having the same love, that is, they deeply love the calling they have. And then he adds, being in full accord, meaning they have an enthusiastic, common passion. You know why many churches become disunified? It's because the little things become big things, and the big things, their ultimate calling, become the little things. The big things are what Christ has done for us and the mission that he has called us to, while the little things are the hundreds of things that allow us to cause deep hurt and division to endure. But Paul is not done. In verses 3 to 4, he speaks of doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to the interests of others. So those words are peculiar. How are we to consider others more significant than ourselves? See, at first glance, this seems hopelessly impossible. It's our nature to think of ourselves before we think of others. Now, as much as that's true, I think Paul has something else in mind. I think what he means in verse 3 is answered in verse 4. He wants the believers in the church in Philippi to be looking around and asking what needs others have, not just their own. After all, That's what they did when they took an offering for Paul when he was in prison. Paul wants the Philippians to use this act of their care for him as a model for how they should care for one another. See, what does that require? Well, let me tell you a little story, and it it comes not from a Christian, but a political leader in India, the man we all know as Gandhi. Apparently, one day as he was stepping on board a train, one of his shoes slipped off and landed on the track. He was unable to retrieve that shoe as the train was already moving, and to the amazement of his companions, Gandhi calmly took off his other shoe and threw it right along the track beside the first shoe. One of the passengers asked why he did that, and Gandhi smiled and said, The poor man who finds that shoe lying on the track will now have a pair that he can use. See, what is that? It is a split second thinking not about our own needs, oh no, I've lost my shoe, but rather about the needs of another. Oh, good. A shoeless man now has shoes. See, we can learn that attitude. We can do what God wants us to do. We can ensure our long-term unity by looking over our shoulder and caring for the needs of others. Let's take care that we do not bite and devour each other.
0: John, uh, let's go back to the illustration you just used about Gandhi. Who would have thought about doing that? I I know I wouldn't have. I would have been sulking about losing my shoe and walked on the bus with one foot in a shoe, one foot out. What was he thinking? What came of this guy to do that?
1: Yeah, I would have done the same thing. I I think I would not have imagined so quickly to throw the other shoe on the track. And I've got to believe that that kind of an attitude gets nurtured in our own souls. And we're just looking around constantly how we might do good to someone else. And when we make a practice of that, those kind of actions seem more naturally. I need to preach this to myself. I need to learn that better. And uh, maybe both of us do, Ben. And and as we do, I think we're going to find out that those actions become more
0: natural all the time. That's what Christ wants. Well, I think we've gotten a pretty good sense of what true unity looks like for the church today. A truth that has not changed since Paul's words to the Philippians, where there is encouragement, love, love evidence of the Holy Spirit's activities, and acts of compassion, these are the ingredients for a healthy church. Yet often looking out for others' needs above our own does not come naturally. We must look above and beyond our differences and focus on the big picture. I hope you've been encouraged and enriched in this study of the book of Philippians. Don't miss next week as Dr. Neufeld dives further into this series and will discover more life-changing truths. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
2: Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take Five. These are five minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.